Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hi, Ann Friedman. It's a big day. It's a very big day. When we started doing this podcast four years ago and we had our, like, vision board of who we wanted to talk to on the show, this next person was definitely top three. This morning, thinking about speaking with her, I was, like, making notes about questions to ask her and was, like, actually tearing up thinking about this. I know. I'm really upset about how terrible the weather is because I felt like I couldn't dress my best for her today, you know? Same. Okay, who Um, is it? And she's going to walk in here looking fabulous. Always. (sighs) Ah. It is one of our favorite women leaders in the cosmos, Cecile Richards. Uh. So Cecile Richards was president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America starting in 2006, and she stepped down from that role earlier this year. She's on the board of like dozens and dozens of important civic and human rights organizations. Cecile is talking to us in part because she has a new book called Make Trouble, Standing Up, Speaking Out, and Finding the Courage to Lead, My Life Story, which can we just talk about how how much goals finding the courage to lead my life story as like a book subtitle? Like, yeah. Ugh. But that's the thing about the book that's so amazing. Honestly, it's like, it's definitely like, you know, part biography and you're like, yes, like, you're here for the Cecile Richards story. You're here for the Anne Richards story mm. in there. You're here for, like, everything she, like, did to, like, make sure that all of the terrible people in Congress didn't take our uh, reproductive rights away. But then it is also, like, a how-to manual. Here is how you are a leader. And I love that. A lot of times when people, when we think about, like, uh, leadership how-tos, it seems very cheesy and hokey. And here's somebody actually that has a lot of skin in the game, that has done the hard work. There's nothing cheesy or hokey about it. It's like, here is how you go out and be a bold leader. She's an all-around icon. I mean, I do think that this is also part of the book, but like in 2015, when she testified for five straight hours before Congress, when there was like sham hearings related to covert videos taken at Planned Parenthoods, it was so remarkable to watch like the very literal, like, one woman stands against all of these pressures to curtail the rights of all. It was like, I don't know, it was kind of like watching the Wendy Davis speech before the Texas legislature. It's like how I feel when I watch old footage of, like, Barbara Jordan Mm -hmm. speaking. I don't know, like, you know. Literal human firewalls. Exactly. every single, you remember that stretch, that Obama stretch of years where every single week they were trying to take our reproductive rights away. Right, they it were was, so angry. Yeah. It was so it was so obnoxious, but and but also you did have the sense that she's the only one standing in the breach. It's her and if she, you know, like that's the only person that we have to speak for us. Which is obviously really not true, but also yeah. yeah, it was really she so she is a very important figure I think when I think about what does it mean to stand up and be very vocal about the things that you believe in in the face of a lot of institutionalized opposition. Yes. The other thing too, you know, that's like fascinating and uh and we're going to get to into with her. It's how do you take 
an organization into like the modern age, mm. you know, because got a hundred so year much, old organization, right? It's like so much of Planned Parenthood is like, you know, it's like the equipment's still the same, <laughs> the people are still <laughs> the same. There's not a lot there that's changing, but except is, the laws, which are getting worse. Exactly, yeah. the laws are getting worse. Um, you know, those are going backwards. But like our definition of who it is that gets the services at Planned Parenthood has changed, mm-hmm. and to see how like they embrace technology so wholeheartedly. They were really, really, really inspirational in getting a lot of other progressive orgs to become more trans friendly mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and have visibility there was something that was, it was really cool mm-hmm. to like see happen. And yeah, there's nothing stale about the mission of Planned Parenthood and it, it, it has kept up with the times. Hello, Cecile Richards. Thank you for coming on Call Your Girlfriend. Yes. I'm so excited. It's oh so great to be here gosh. with you. I'm like, freaking out a little bit. <laughs> I'm sweating only slightly. <laughs> Thanks for writing Make Trouble. You're welcome. We, we were saying earlier that uh, standing up, speaking out, and finding the courage to lead, my life story is kind of an iconic <laughs> title. It's an aspirational subtitle like, for us. I'm like, this is, this is a lot here. Like, these are all things I would like to be able to say I have done in my lifetime. <laughs> There's still time. There's plenty of time. Yeah. Well, so one of the first, like, things about you that I didn't know is that you studied history, which can feel like one step forward, two steps back sometimes. Are there any kind of activist moments or movements that you look back and you draw inspiration from? Well, um, I did study history at Brown, although I was, I feel like I studied history and I kind of minored in, you know, troublemaking at Brown. So I would say (laughs) I was like the best student ever. But I actually did study revolutionary history, which was really interesting, you know, looking at what had happened over the years. And one person I was really inspired by was Emma Goldman, who was way ahead of her time as being a not only a revolutionary and a troublemaker, but also a real feminist. You know, her iconic quote, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution, which I always loved because it seemed like it it did something that that I hope I do a little bit in this book, which is to say, you know, troublemaking is not only, I hope, can somehow change the world for the better if you're if you're lucky, but it also can be an incredibly joyful life, and these things can go hand in hand. So do you have a definition of making trouble or troublemaking? Well, I mean, I hope it's a little bit tongue in cheek and that and of course my my idol, uh, the person everyone would wish they could grow up to be, Congressman John Lewis always says, you know, it's okay to make trouble as long as you're making good trouble. And so I, I do like to think that this is about how do you challenge the status quo? speak up to authority, do things even if you might get in trouble, because change and social change in this country and around the world never happened because someone waited their turn or um, asked permission. It's because they just did it anyway. And again, it's interesting right now, this moment in the country where we just see so much, everything is challenged. I think every fundamental belief and a lot of progress that we've made uh, is challenged. So many people have stopped me and say, like, I don't know, what should I do? And I hope that this is this book is sort of a um, homage to all of all of the people out there who are trying to figure out how to make a little trouble um, in order to go in a better direction. So I think I told you this when we spoke at South by Southwest on that panel mm-hmm. about uh, how I went to UT 50% for breakfast tacos and 50% <laughs> because of your mom. One, <laughs> Two like, very good yeah, reasons. Very, I was very like, good. I want to go to school in Texas. When I was reading your book, I was like, why did you leave Austin to go to the East Coast? It had everything. <laughs> so thinking about, um, you know, thinking a lot about how, like, what a big personality your mom was and, and yep. all of that. 
Like, did you feel that you were growing in her shadow and that you had to carve out a space for yourself? Well, the funny thing about uh, my mom, Ann Richards, who was the governor of Texas, is that most people, you know, yeah, folks will ask me, oh, my God, it must have been incredible having this feminist icon as your mom. But for most of my life, she was a housewife, as we said back in the day. I mean, yeah. she was raising four kids, never really got to have her own life and own voice in many ways until I left for college. So I wouldn't say I grew up in her shadow, but it was really exciting to see what she did with her life. And I love, I love the fact that you know, it wasn't until she actually ran Sarah Weddington's race for state representative, the very young lawyer who'd argued the Roe versus Wade case, that she had a real, quote unquote, job, paying job. And that and it changed everything for her. So I like to think now at this time where people think it may be too late, it's never too late to have a great life and to do something bold and daring that you never thought you could do. But yes, partly, I'd spent my entire life in Texas. And so it was pretty exciting to get out and see a little bit of the rest of the world. Mm, wild. <laughs> also, I would say the breakfast tacos when I was growing up, they really were not as good as they are now. So Okay. Yeah. Innovation. So when you were 30, is that right? Is that when you moved back to help your mother with her race for governor? I think that's about right. And I'm curious about, so you're 60 now, is that right? That's right. Which is shocking. Yeah, um, to me too. <laughs> um, if you could time travel back to that 30-year-old self who was helping on that campaign, what would you tell her or what did you— what would she need to know, do you think? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, I came back. I was a union organizer, and my husband and I packed up the U-Haul with our daughter, Lily, who was, I think, at that point, two, uh, and drove back to Texas to help mom and her race. And, I mean, there's a lot of things, I, I think, I guess, if you were going to go back and create the perfect environment that maybe you could do. But I'm so glad that we didn't, because we didn't have any better sense than to just think, oh, well, mom wants to run for governor. We can do this. Forget the fact that she's a progressive, divorced woman. No one's ever done it before. And that's, I think, what I try to tell in this in this book, is that if you wait until everything's perfectly lined up, you'll never do it. And I'm actually kind of grateful that I guess I was as naive as I was because no one ever gave her a chance of winning. It was really more this, oh, well, let's just try it. And then, of course, she did win. And she mainly won because grassroots people just came out in droves that had never gotten to really be involved in politics before, which I think is a good lesson for these times when we're seeing women, um, people of color do historic things in elections that people would have said were unwinnable just a few years ago. Anna and I were talking earlier about just watching you on TV so many times testifying before Congress or giving a speech and that, you know, for an abortion warrior, you don't seem very angry or terrifying, <laughs> as, as Trey Gowdy would like us all to, to believe. Which is how we would be, like, on the witness right. stand, screaming. Yeah, screaming, <laughs> flip tables, and just not. It's like, I'm sorry, what? You know, and your advice is really practical. It's down to earth. It's very direct. Is that a strategic choice, or is it just your personality? Yeah, I would love to think that my life has been strategic, but it hasn't been. <laughs> um, I mean, I think like a lot of women, we just do the next thing that needs doing. Yeah. Like when I found out I was pregnant with twins on the campaign and I had to, I was going to basically travel around enormous in maternity clothes campaigning for a mother. It wasn't like I had a choice to say, okay, well, I'm going to like, you know, I'll just sit this one out. So I just think it's, that's how a lot of our lives are. It's funny, though, going back to the congressional hearing, and I feel like I kind of keep unpacking some of the layers of that. And at the time, of course, it was terrifying 
because I was, knew I was going to be on national television. If yeah. you want to be a private entity, be a private entity. But you don't need federal dollars in order to do this. I don't use it, federal it, dollars to do that, sir. You do to run the organization. Planned, Parenthood, Planned Parenthood has given Planned Parenthood Action Fund more than $22 million to exercise what, to involve in their lobbying expenditures and their advocacy efforts. None of these, none of the dollars that you are discussing are federal dollars. And the Planned Parenthood Federation of America receives almost no federal dollars. I think at this point only twenty-one thousand dollars so for a clinical to, trial it network. It goes to the same organization, control. and you just separate all that out. Let, let we me go are to the last highly point. accountable. And I knew that it wasn't really a hearing. I knew that really the purpose of this yeah. was to try to humiliate me, embarrass me, try to demonize Planned Parenthood, and so that was terrifying. But the interesting thing, I that I think happened as a result is if you just didn't take the bait and you don't let particularly the men who are on that panel who were just angry, they really wanted to get in a fight. And if you just didn't flip the table and didn't get down in the mud with them, they even got more frustrated. And that's when I saw the veins popping, you know, and they were like, (laughs) you know, and that, and I think it actually at the end of the day turned out to be a great opportunity to educate millions of people in the country about Planned Parenthood. We gained supporters after that hearing, and a lot of people turned out to become activists that hadn't been before. So in a way, uh, it had um, it had a, a good a, a unintended consequence, I think, from the folks who had actually called the hearing in the first place. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, metaphorically or big picture wise, it can often feel to many of us like we are one woman standing before a bunch of men with veins popping out of their neck who just want to get into a fight. But, um, but having like that be literally true of your experience and, and being there. I mean, I, I totally understand the notion that the best course of action is to just like, let them get angrier like that, you know, you, you were prepared going into that, but did that ever, like, did you get home that night and feel like, like, I'm so angry or upset? Or did, you know, did that come out in some other way? Well, I think one thing that happened during the middle of the hearing, uh, I got a text from my son, Daniel, who always sort of comes up with the most hilarious thing in, in you know, whatever whatever episode of my life. And he texted me in the middle of the hearing and said, Mom, you're doing so great. I'm watching you on TV. I think raising me all those years really helped you prepare for this panel. <laughs> and I thought, you know, he's not half wrong. And so part of it was just been there before a bit. And, of course, it was exhausting. I thought, is this going to ever end? Because it went on and on and on. I remember leaving, leaving the hearing feeling absolutely exhausted and kind of getting a little teary-eyed. But then I didn't have, like a lot of women, I didn't have a chance to do the next thing. I was actually had to go on Rachel Maddow that night. So it wasn't like you get to go home and just collapse. But it also showed me what I, again, I hope is just a theme for, for women in this day, which is you can always do so much more than you even know you can. And oftentimes we don't have a chance to, to wait until we're ready. I mean, in fact, I think that would be a good theme for these days, which is uh, start before you're ready. Yeah, you know, a lot of the advice that you give is like it's very practical, especially for younger women who want to work at nonprofits or want to do mission driven kind of work. You know, not to go back to that same like testimony again. But when Jason Chaffetz asked you about your salary, it was mm-hmm. so infuriating because the implication is that like if you are a woman and you work in mission driven work, um, nobody should pay you. You should do it out of the kindness of your heart. 
and probably also they're mad that you right, make like more money than them. Right, like a real activist. That yeah. was actually what they were mad about. I yeah, think. they're just like, uh, you know, like, they can't make as much money as you make, and uh, and you're a monster. So, you know, like, what would you tell all these young women who want to work at nonprofits about the compensation that they deserve? Mm-hmm. I think it's really important uh one that and something I frankly never was able to do, which was speak up for myself and advocate for myself on the job, because I think a lot of us that work in advocacy and nonprofits, I mean, we do it because we're driven to that kind of work. And but I think it's incredibly important that women. I, I actually talk about this with my daughters. Is like, how do they, you know, how do you kind of like steal yourself and prepare yourself to go in and say, well, I think I'm as, I'm worth at least. What the guys are making, because as we know, still women aren't paid um, equal to men for the same work. Women of color disproportionately not paid the same. I just think it's a skill that we that we need to develop that we don't necessarily have. But yes, that was a classic example of trying to humiliate. I think because they couldn't find any factual things wrong with Planned Parenthood, so they had to go after me personally, and most of the attacks felt personal. Also, Jason Chaffetz obviously didn't have his facts right because, of course, he's the one of the famous, uh, as Rachel Maddow says, the the chart that had no Y axis. Um, <laughs> really, you know, that I think just got him. Uh, he was mad then because he'd been shown out to be basically misrepresenting Planned Parenthood from the get go, and there's nothing that they like less than being embarrassed. Right. Yeah. Human woodchuck hybrid, Jason Chaffetz. <laughs> uh, no longer in office, Jason Chaffetz. Yeah, important. Anyway. Important qualifiers <laughs> He's probably going to start name. a podcast any day now. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm curious about, take us back to when you decided to step into this role at Planned mm-hmm. Parenthood. Because, I mean, so much of being a leader of any organization is being the human embodiment of that organization. And as you were just saying, that is that comes with some very personal consequences when the organization is, you know, defending <laughs> reproductive rights or, or working on issues that are so historically contentious. And so were you aware of just how much like you would be synonymous with the organization? And were you comfortable with that decision at the beginning? And how did you feel about it as it kind of went through the years? Well, it's so funny because I I was concerned about going to the interview, but for a completely different set of reasons. It would never have occurred to me oh, this might not be a job I'd want because it's contentious because pretty much everything I've ever done in my life is contentious or, you know, made somebody mad. I was more concerned about going to the job interview because I was just sure I didn't have the skills to do it. And again, I find, you know, I've done this all my life and this is something I also see women do a lot, which you go, well, I, you know, I've never run anything that big. I've never taken on such a huge, you know, important organization. And of course, secretly, you know, what if I fail? You know, how nervous I would be. And so I remember I almost didn't go to the interview. And the search firm had called me, and I was, so I was like, oh, my God. I called my husband. I said, can you imagine, like, having the chance to be the president of Planned Parenthood? But then I almost didn't go, and I called my mom from a coffee shop, and she said, what are you saying? She said, you are, you know, because I think she spent her entire life trying to get women to just take, you know, take the next step. She said, you know, the only things you regret in life are the things you don't try. And just get out there. It's like felt like she was like a stage mom pushing me out there. <laughs> and thank goodness she did. And so I've tried to carry that out not only for myself, but also for a lot of women that I run into who, you know, will, will say things like, well, I don't have the right degree or I, I don't have these certain skills. And I never, I never have men say that to me. Mm. Never. So I just hope we can kind of get over that. But anyway, it never occurred to me not to want the job because it would be a source of controversy. I, I didn't have any idea 
exactly all the controversy we'd get into, but I feel like every single moment, as my friend Dawn Legans, who works with me at Planned Parenthood, says, you know, if the idea is to make, you know, lemonade out of lemons, we're a friggin' lemonade factory at Planned Parenthood. (laughs) (laughs) So we do every day. That's so wild to hear you say that about the interview, because I think that to a lot of us, you're also synonymous with the person that brought Planned Parenthood into the 21st century. And just that, like, embracing of technology, embracing of, you know, the new vocabulary that we and realities that we have around gender and how it felt seamless, at you know, at points and it felt very modern. And what is different since you've left Planned Parenthood? I mean, I did have a lot. I just want to say this to, to women who might be listening. There were so many things I didn't know how to do, right? So I just want to disabuse anyone of the idea that you come into these jobs and you've kind of got it all together. I do think that we have, by luck or by intention, done a few things that have been important for the organization. One is we invested in young people. I remember when I when I first started Planned Parenthood, when I would go to an event, you know, women of a certain generation would come up to me and say, where are the young people? We did all this. We won all these rights. And now, you know, they take it for granted. And, you know, 12 years later, I never hear that anymore. Never. Because there are young people everywhere at Planned Parenthood. And they have changed the organization in so many ways. We did invest in technology. It just seems the whole idea of of the internet and Planned Parenthood is like a marriage made in heaven. Because it's if the idea is to get information and care to people without barriers, the interwebs, that's the best. Um, I mean, we now have you know, about two and a half million patients every year. But I write, you know, as we began to build the web presence, we have six million plus visitors every month now. Um, we're selling birth control online. We're texting and what? chatting. I'm telling you. <laughs> <clears throat> well, look, we just did this amazing research for a self-injectable birth control that you can take home. It lasts for three months. And we just got it through the FDA that you can go and basically get a year's worth of birth control, four shots, and take it home and not have to go to a clinic. I mean, this to me is, if you look at technology and reproductive technology, and then you hook it up with Planned Parenthood as a healthcare provider to so many people, that's when, I don't care, Congress can try to defund us, Congress can try to do a lot of things. They can't uninvent the internet. And that, to me, (laughs) is a real opportunity for us. And I hope we're exploiting it in every way we can. Yes. Speaking of other exploited opportunities, um, when you think about this political moment that we're in, I feel personally pretty conflicted about both the possibilities of a lot of people who haven't been personally affected by unjust policies in this country. I mean, frankly, like a lot of pretty financially comfortable white women waking up in this moment being a huge opportunity. Um, At the same time, it's hard to really be like, there's a silver lining when so many people's lives are under more direct threat. And I'm wondering how you think about those questions in this moment, or if you you share my ambivalence. (laughs) No, of course, because you're right. There is this outpouring of women, a lot of other people, folks who have, are now woke, if we would say that. But it's at the sacrifice of a lot of people in this country. I mean, it's just heartbreaking at Planned Parenthood to see it's harder for immigrants to come in. We serve everyone. We don't care your immigration status, your gender, your gender identity, nothing. But it is really sad, and, and you know, it makes me angry to see the, the struggles that people have just to get affordable health care in America and so many other things that we could talk about in the criminal justice system, gun violence, 
I mean, just the, what's happened over this last week is just so incredibly maddening. So we have to, though, maximize this opportunity to change the direction of the country. But I, I look at elections. They're just a way station. This is just on the, on the road to social justice. Elections aren't everything. And what I do think is important right now, you know, women of color have been really carrying on their back electing progressives to office for too long. And it is absolutely time that white women do more and step up more and talk to each other and really do the hard work that we need to do. And it's important to recognize that even if the Democrats or progressives win in November, that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. Because we can't just have one party take over and then not actually fight for the kind of justice that people deserve in America. So I think we have to do both of these things. And that's what I'm really... So if that's the conflict, I just feel like it's important to recognize that just a ping pong ball of one party or the other doesn't fundamentally change power. And to me, investing in grassroots, recognizing that the important leadership that's happening in America is not happening in Washington, D.C. It's happening in Alabama and Wisconsin and, you know, Virginia and a lot of places where we need to have more people active. We have more people registered, more people voting, and finally more equity in who's, who's in office. One of the topics that I was pleasantly surprised that you talked about a lot was uh, work-life balance (laughs) (laughs) in the book. How do you draw boundaries for yourself when the work that you do is so personal and it's so, you know, like mission-driven? Okay, so true confessions. If you read my book, which I hope you will, whoever's listening— it is not going to solve the problem of work-life balance. <laughs> I just have to be rude. super <laughs> honest. Because As somebody who's read it, it has solved my problem. <laughs> She's a new woman okay. now. Well, yeah. anyway. I also don't have kids or a husband. <laughs> and a big job. Um, <laughs> problem solved. I, look, I, I'm not saying that work-life balance is a myth, but I obviously I've been very privileged because my work has always been work that just brought enormous joy to me, even if it was hard sometimes and even if it was a struggle and long hours. And there's a lot of people in this country, they don't have that option. I mean, I organized low-wage working women for years who they didn't get to to choose to work at Planned Parenthood or work in the labor movement. They were working at the local nursing home because that was the only place they could actually get a job. And so I think it's incumbent on us to, yes, preserve our sanity, do the things that bring us joy, and also, though, remember how privileged we are to actually work in, in work that makes a difference in people's lives. And so I try to keep those women in my in my head. And then, yes, you got to find things that you love to do. I love to cook. I love to cook with my kids. I find enormous joy in that. I like to go meet new people. I like to travel. So I have a full life. But part of the real um, 
way to me you bring work-life balance is loving your work. It just makes it a lot easier. And what about other types of balance? You know, like on this podcast, we're always like joking, not joking about all money being dirty <laughs> and about like the dirty game of capitalism. But but it's it, it speaks to a real dilemma that I think we think about a lot and that a lot of our listeners think about, which is everyday ways you're spending your time and money. How how specific and granular do you get with your ethics and your point of view? And, you know, as someone who has this deep background in labor organizing and is also thinking about the big picture as well, do you have any kind of like daily decisions where you're like, oh, I'm torn up about this, but I do shop at this place? Or do you have do you have boundaries you set for yourself in terms of your personal lived politics like that? Oh, my God. Well, I don't – I try to shop as little as possible, but not because I'm torn about it, because I just hate shopping. So I'm just going to be honest. That's not even – I would love to say that's an ethical dilemma. Sure, sure. It just seems like it's a necessity uh, of life, but otherwise – no, I think the important thing is, particularly for for folks like me who I've, you know, I've spent my entire life in social justice and the labor movement and uh, the progressive movement and – Obviously, one of the joys of that is now being able to give back. So I love to support abortion funds. I love to support struggling organizations. Because I remember I started a couple of organizations myself. I talk, in, I talk in the book about what it's like to start a nonprofit when it's like basically you, your grandmother is your donor, and your children are your volunteers. So I remember what it's like to try to stand up something that seems like a good idea, but is really hard to do. And so maybe that's one of the things I try to think about is, not just what are the really big, important, success, you know, quote-unquote successful organizations doing, but what are people trying to do that is really pushing the edge of the envelope and um, doing things that, that are hard. So maybe that's that's what I'd say. Do you have any small organizations that you want to shout out that you love? Oh, my or, God. Or I fear if I started doing that, then it would really be, um, you know, I don't want to disadvantage anyone. I mean, one of the people, though, I've gotten to know over the last couple of years in this work, and they're not even small and struggling anymore because they're just amazing. That's color change. So mm, Rashad yeah. has become a mm-hmm. friend. And I just, yeah. I really not only like to support him, um, but I learn from him. And I mean, I think there are uh, reproductive justice organizations that are really, they've been on the forefront of explaining the intersection of all these issues long before it was popular, long before a presidential candidate uses the word intersectionality. So I'd say Monica Simpson at Sister Song is really impressive and a whole network of women that are particularly in some of the southern states where it is just hard. It is just hard. The women there are facing so many barriers to everything. So um, I'm proud of them. Mm. Can you tell us more about the Texas Freedom Network, the org that you started to fight against right-wing textbook censorship and how, like, why you started it, how you started it, and what's going on with that? Yeah. So uh, as, as we've talked about, I grew up in Texas, lived there a lot of my life. I ended up there because mom, you know, we ran her campaign for governor. And then um, she got beat for governor, her re-election, as people, some people will remember, by George Bush, who then went on, of course, to become president. And... I saw in that election that the rise of the right wing, and particularly what was then known as the Christian Coalition, was hugely influential in Texas and really reshaped the Republican Party, which used to be kind of full of a little some moderates, some some conservatives, a little bit of this and that. And they also started taking over school boards. They elected people to the State Board of Education and started wanting to censor textbooks. And so I thought someone ought to do something about this. And then I realized maybe that someone was me. And so um, 
I said to Kirk, I want to, I just, I think we need to start an organization that fights for um, religious, you know, uh, freedom and public education. And it, then as it grew, certainly reproductive rights and more. And now, now the Texas Freedom Network works on all kinds of stuff. So I started that organization, again, in my living room. And my grandmother gave me $100, which has to be the biggest check she had ever written in her entire life. And Hannah and Daniel, my twins, were little, and so they would come back out of after you know kindergarten, and they would fold uh, flyers and you know do mailings for me. But now it's it's continued on, and actually it's a big progressive force in Texas. I'm so proud of what people have done there. I would have hoped, like many of the progressive things we start, that it would have outlived its importance or usefulness. But unfortunately, in the state of Texas, it's become even more important to have a fighting force taking on. Oh, my God, the legislature, the governor, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general. As we know, I think we're in a pretty dark period in terms of Texas politics right now. When you think about all these intersecting and various issues that you are so invested in, do all of them feel just like the longest game? <laughs> like you're like, oh my gosh, like decades from now, like maybe we'll still, you know, you, you made that comment about, I hoped this organization would, <laughs> would you know, make, make itself not necessary, right? I'm curious about whether the long game is depressing or invigorating, <laughs> or maybe neither. I, I really do think if you're, if you're not fighting for something that's hard and it's going to take forever, you haven't picked a big enough target. Mm. <laughs> and so I think whether it's the fight for racial justice, for uh, women's rights, for LGBTQ rights, for immigrants' rights, these are fights that we are going to be engaged in a long, long time. But I do think it's really important as progressives that we stop every once in a while and like say amen for the things that have changed, even as we recommit ourselves to the fight ahead. And I think that's one of the things that was important to me, even during all the tumult during 12 years at Planned Parenthood. To me, the most important moment in my time was the day I got a phone call from President Obama. I love to say those two <laughs> words together and remember that there was a moment um, when that what, that was what was happening here. But when he called to tell me that we were going to get birth control for all women in this country at no copay in insurance. Ugh. And that was... <laughs> Chills. I'm just like, I'm so <laughs> happy just hearing you re-say that. Yeah. It, it was one of those things where you think, you know, as we say with progressives, you know, you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, and then you win. And when you do win, it's such a big thing. And now... Yeah. That's, and again, as we know, the Trump administration is trying to take away birth control from women, but folks just aren't having it. And that to me was, I knew at that moment that it wouldn't just change the lives of folks who came to Planned Parenthood. It would mean millions of women. And in fact, that's what we found at Planned Parenthood. You know, they started taking copies on their cell phones of their CVS receipt that said zero copay and, and, and sending them to us. And now we're at the lowest rate of teenage pregnancy in the history of America. And that, you know, again, we got a lot to do, and it's very uneven, the progress we've made. We really have to recommit, I hope and believe, to equity. But we do have to stop and celebrate the times when we actually win. Mm -hmm. I just got chills. I forgot what it's like to win. <laughs> Right. It is amazing how quickly you forget, I know. right? One day we'll win again. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. I have like a practical uh, book writing question for you. <laughs> Can you tell us how to As, write a book? Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us how to write a book? Um, what was like one thing that was hard about writing the book and one thing that was like came very easily? So one thing uh, is because I was doing this while I also was working at Planned Parenthood and am working at Planned Parenthood. So, yeah, it's a lot of weekends and 
took a couple weeks in the summer. One thing is essential is I could not have done this book without Lauren Peterson, who was my Yay, like, Lauren! Um, <laughs> a young woman who I had the good fortune to know, used to work with me at Planned Parenthood, worked for Hillary. She's the best. Then somehow was willing to come back and help, you know, edit and find stuff and track things down. So that's the hard thing is like doing it all by yourself. I can't imagine. So yeah, find Lauren Peterson. <laughs> Lauren, <laughs> See if she'll call do this. Us. Yes. <laughs> um, but I, I think that it actually came easier writing. Although I'm sure Lauren is laughing, saying, "Oh yeah, you think it was easy? <laughs> we had to do a lot of cleanup, my friend." <laughs> but uh, I think I was just kind of busting out with stories I wanted to tell, and some of them were of crazy times, you know, being pregnant with twins on the campaign trail and trying to find pantyhose that would fit, uh, you know, when I was working for my mom or, you know, some of the joy and heartbreak of working on uh, President Obama's campaign or Hillary Clinton's campaign. But the other thing that was just so joyful to me was getting to tell the stories of people that I met along the way. And one of the amazing things about Planned Parenthood in, you know, these last 12 years is... I can remember high schoolers I met 12 years ago. Mm. And then, in fact, one of them just came back to see me. Her name's Lindsay Swisher. She was in Kalamazoo, Michigan. She was a uh, high schooler going off to college. Now she's been to the Peace Corps. Now she's back. Now she's going to get her master's. And she came back and visited me. And it's just like the stories of courage and resilience that I got to see every day, and some of which I've tried to write in the book, made this so much easier because I think that these are people that folks can just relate to. Just doing the next important thing. How did you know that, like, this was the time to tell those stories? It was really right after the election when I couldn't get on a subway or, you know, walk down a street or be at an airport without someone running up to me and saying, what am I supposed to do? Like, Honestly, as if there was one thing they could do that would somehow make it all go away and everything would be okay. And of course, that's just not how that's just not how making real social change happens. There isn't one thing. But the interesting thing is it may be the one thing you do. You really never know. And so I I really wrote this book for all those people because I thought, well, I'm not gonna be able to talk to everybody at every airport, but at least I could put some of these ideas down in a book. And so I hope this is sort of a um call to action and maybe an inspiration. You know, I, I think back this last year, we went into this administration, Paul Ryan saying, almost the first, you know, weeks on the job, we are going to have a bill on President Trump's desk that's going to defund Planned Parenthood and repeal Obamacare. And there was really literally nothing we thought we could do to stop it. But people went out and tried anyway and spent months organizing and showing up at town hall meetings and writing Congress and coming to Washington. And you know what? We beat it back every single time. Because of that outpouring of people around the country, our doors are open all across the United States of America. And so who knows which call or which town hall meeting turned the tide? All of it mattered. Right. If I could go back to myself in January and say, you know, actually, Paul Ryan's not going to check anything off his to-do list. That's right. <laughs> and it wasn't because like, he changed his mind. Right. It wasn't because he's changed his mind. It was because, and we know there were members of Congress canceling town hall meetings because mm-hmm. they just did not want to have see a bunch of irate women in pink <laughs> hats and shirts. I remember one of them in, in Colorado who literally, like, tried to run out the back door only to be met by all these women in pink. Um <laughs> And I, and I went to Paul Ryan's own district 
And uh, I write about um, Lori uh, Hawkins, one of the women I met there, who was a Planned Parenthood patient uh, in his own district. And she was so upset. She'd never really been an activist, but she brought her daughter all the way to Washington, D.C. to try to meet with him to say, but she has her daughter because of the health care she got at Planned Parenthood. The other day, I got a note that someone said, you know, I you've been used as a reference for someone who's thinking of running for office. Do you know Lori Hawkins? <laughs> and I'm thinking, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Yes. Right, there we go. And so that is, that to me is the, the real anthem of this last year is, you know, people just saying, okay, time for me to do, to do more than I've ever thought I could. Mm. Going back to something you said earlier about being bursting with stories yeah. <laughs> to tell, um, do you keep a journal? Do you keep track of that stuff? How do you, how did you know exactly what you wanted to tell or need? I to don't. Tell? I don't really keep a journal. I'm sure that would have been a good idea, but it, that ship's kind of sailed. So I guess anyone listening, yeah, I'm sure writing a journal that sounds like a good good thing to do. I remember people. I don't remember anything else. I don't remember the history classes I took at Brown, but I remember <laughs> the people I've met and. Over time, I do a lot of public speaking, and I try to tell the stories of the people I meet. And in fact, sometimes Laura and I will be on the on the road, and we'll say, "Yeah, remember remember that eight year old kid in the capital in Texas, and when he was doing this." So anyway, it also helps to have somebody who's been on the road with me a lot. And but bringing those folks to life is pretty pretty fun. Wait, so this cute notebook you have sitting here is not your journal. It's not my journal. This is my to-do list, which oh, I think is a super it's different thing. It's the same thing. Like it's it says exactly right here. Same thing. It says here, number one, send cherry pie recipe <laughs> to radio person who asked for it. So that's the kind of thing, if I don't write it down, I will forget. You can oh, send yeah. it to us, too, at <laughs> at gmail.com. Or send actual pies. We'll eat them. That, that might even be easier. Yeah. Okay. I think taking notes to remember, that's what my journaling is. It's it is. just notes and what I had for breakfast. Yeah, mine and is just, random. Okay, very, there's there are not real sentences in there. It's, it's right. Points of the okay, day. good. I just want to disabuse you of the idea that this is something brilliant here. Um, no, it's really memories. I just think power ladies always carry around a notebook like that, and I always, always want to know what's in it. You know. Well, I mean, we have to, and particularly <laughs> when you're raising three kids, you got. I mean, somebody's always got to go to the dentist, or mm-hmm. so, you know, something's always happening. There's a school play. There's something. <laughs> okay, so when you quit your job. Did you, like, go away? What's your version of the Obama's, like, like world oh, tour? Right. vacation. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. What's your version of that? Yeah, yeah. I, hmm, that's a fantasy. I don't have—and actually, I haven't I haven't finished at Planned Parenthood. I still have—I'm um, I'm not leaving until May, so I haven't had that moment yet. And, of course, May is already booked up with a lot of stuff. <laughs> and it's funny. I'm not—and I'm not, not leaving— um, and I like to say I'm stepping aside, not really stepping down, because I'm going to be in this fight for the rest of my life. It's so important to me. I really am focused, though, on these November elections. Again, not just winning, quote unquote, but actually ensuring that women are having every opportunity to participate in the elections, whether it's as candidates, as activists, as campaign managers. Because, as we know, a lot of the a lot of the laws that have been passed to prevent people from voting. They're disproportionately hurt women and women of color and women with low incomes. And so we have to do extra special work to make sure that they can participate. And if we do, they'll get elected, and people who support women will get elected. And that'll be worth it. So that's what I'm going to do this sprint between now and November. Why don't you run for office? Oh, you know, I've thought about it before sometime, but I, there's never really been the right thing that I wanted to do. And and I also— I have a district in Virginia to sell you. 
<laughs> well, it is kind of crazy. Some How of the great moving. Some <laughs> of the great districts. I mean, there's just been like eight an outpouring of folks running. In fact, it was so exciting. The last Virginia races were electing mm-hmm. the first two Latinas to the yeah. state assembly, the first transgender woman to the state assembly. It just even in Texas. I hate to say that. Even I love Texas. Okay, I'm a Texan, but you know it's not been an easy political time. The first two Latina Congresswomen, uh, barring some some unforeseen uh, event, are coming to Congress next November. That brings me as much joy as running myself. And I'm, you know, at heart, I'm an organizer, and I love bring people together and maybe giving them the tools and whatever they support they need to live their best life, including running for office. So obviously the show is about friendship and women's friendships in particular. Who are the friends who have gotten you through hard times or who are the people you call when you like just can't figure out what to do about something or when you're feeling really low and you need mm-hmm. that like support and feedback? Wow. Um well, my friend Patty, who lives in Austin, most of my girlfriends, best girlfriends, are still in Austin. So that's kind of hard being up here in the big city, New York. Um, but she and I raised our kids together. Her son, Jess, went to school with my twins, uh, Daniel and Hannah. So she's a good touchstone. She's also from Louisiana, so she understands all the things that are important in life, like food and music. And she's an old soul. She's someone, you know, you know how you have friends who just, they've been around before. And I feel like Patty has got that that kind of Zen attitude. Mm-hmm. And then I would say the other, it, this is, may sound really uh, strange, but my kids, they're my best support network. I mean, they are all in their own ways, sort of part of the resistance. So we're we're as likely to either, I mean, we certainly share, you know, like barbecue shrimp recipes together and things like that. And I try to write in my book about what it's like to have kids who you love to cook with and love to do stuff with. But they're so committed to social justice. And so sometimes when I need like a boost, I call them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My eldest daughter, uh, Lily, is working for Kamala Harris now in the United States Senate. And so... Also, I call her to find out what in the world is going on in Washington. <laughs> so it's nice to have a on-the-ground source. Yeah, um, The deep state, you mean? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Inside info. Yeah. Yep. So what are you excited about next? I know that sounds super cliche and everybody will ask you that, but like, what are you super excited about? about doing next. Also, it's okay if the answer is just pie. Like, you can answer this question yeah, any I mean, way you want. I, I we have, are having cherry pie today. <laughs> I, I, I have been making a few pies in the last month. So I guess I'm excited about, um, one, making sure that this transition at Planned Parenthood is good and solid, and, and then we're going through, and they'll, they'll pick a new president. And I do think they're as strong as they've ever, you know, or we are as strong as we've ever been. Actually, sorry, can I just like throw in this little factoid? Because I love to. We actually now have nearly 12 million uh, supporters in the country, which is more than twice the size of the NRA. And so just wrap your head around that. If all of Planned Parenthood supporters voted in this next election, we could really run the table. Or we could start an aura called toxic shock syndrome. <laughs> I like and that. take on the NRA. I like that. It's my fantasy. No, I just think it's really important that that if we participated in the way that in the way that we should. So I am focused on on that and making sure that we run through the tape in November. But I'm also interested in talking to women. I'm I'm gonna go do kind of a listening tour with women, talk to them about and listen really. I think there's a lot of women in the this country who feel like government just is not paying attention to what their daily concerns are. And it's not radical, revolutionary new ideas. It's like, 
making enough money to support your family. It's like getting equal pay. It is making sure you can get access to affordable health care. One of the interesting things I saw this last year is in the big fight to defend Planned Parenthood and Obamacare is women are hot and bothered about losing their access to health care. And it didn't end. I actually think they're going to carry that right into November. So I want to do more uh, more to lift women up, get them to do whatever we need to do, make sure they can participate. And then when that election is over, fight for the things that women need. Well, Collier, about starting a podcast, I think. Hot and bothered. With Hot Amita and bothered. And <laughs> oh, man, I got a million ideas where that came from. Yeah. Really? <laughs> well, well, Indeed. Okay, if you I don't want to share them all. Yeah. I don't want to share them all because you, know, you have to read the book. Um called Make Trouble. Um, yes, by Make Trouble. By, the and, cover alone is iconic. Is. Like, <laughs> millennial pink. Plan par- but Planned Parenthood was millennial pink before anybody else. That so, Planned Parenthood you know? pink, oh, is, millenn- is pink like a millennial color yeah. now? The Millennials have pink. appropriated pink from Planned Parenthood. <laughs> That's cool. We're, we're, it's open source. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, the cover is like legendary. You want it on your bookshelf. Okay, good. I'll and also you'll want to read it. Also you'll yeah. want to read it. Like mm-hmm. that's the other thing. Um, well, I hope that I hope that's true that I think it's a readable book. I mean, oh, it's I, very you know, readable. It's, uh, I hope there are some parts that make you laugh and some parts that might make you cry, but more than anything else that maybe can inspire folks to take action. I mean, I think that it's the best of everything. It's like part biography, you get all the juicy stuff that you came for. You're like, ooh, who's Behind Kirk? the scenes. You know, who's like, Kirk? Who's Kirk? <laughs> I know, you know, Gail King, uh, she says she's in love with Kirk now. I mean, listen, I don't know. Kirk sounds like a champion. I'm going to keep, yeah, I'm going to keep him back, back so, under wraps. Know, also like, the question, do you know Gail King? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but it was really Gail funny. Yeah, oh, sorry. No, yeah. no the, I mean. she's I, Well, no, I just, she just interviewed me and she's like, Kirk. Oh my God, love Kirk. I so. mean, yeah, you know, Kirk's the support system. So you <laughs> get that, you get the juicy biography mm-hmm. stuff that you came for. Then you get the like historical, like you know, like important mom stuff that you came for. And then there's like the practical, day to day, like this is how you be a badass leader. Mm. <laughs> and there, you know, like I don't know, you make it seem very accessible and very much so that everybody can draw something out of themselves. You know, like you don't have to emulate other people. You just have to find mm-hmm. the thing that you care about. And do that. Like, that is your passion. I think that's so well put. And that is how I feel. And there's no genius to how we're going to change the world. It's not like there is one thing. It is that everybody doing a little more than they thought they could. As we like to say, if you're not scaring yourself a little bit, you're probably not doing enough. So just do one more thing that's a little harder. Oh, my God. I was <sighs> scared. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, can we do anything a little harder? <laughs> no, you scared. all are cool. You're good. Oh, you're good. Oh, yeah. Dispensation. <laughs> Dispensation. Okay, so Hot and Bothered with Cecile, Amina, and Anne coming to you this fall. It's going to be a television show, please. I like it. We'll get Gail involved. I like it. (laughs) Invite Gail. That's right. Maybe she'll bring her friend Oprah. Oh my God, stop. (laughs) Maybe Stedman will come. And Kirk. Stedman and Kirk will become friends. Huge. The whole thing. All right. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast or on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can subscribe to our monthly newsletter, The Bleed, on the Call Your Girlfriend website. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. All original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. And this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. 
I'm Cecile Richards. See you on the internet.